We are in Romans, Romans chapter 1. We've been walking through this letter the last few weeks, and we will continue in this letter for the next several weeks. This letter, or this book, I am calling it the letter of good news. Would you agree with me that we need good news? I mean, we are in a society right now, you turn on a television, some bad news, turn on news, bad news, go to your social media feed, you'll probably see some, some bad news. It seems like it surrounds us all the time. It's like you can't get away from it. There's some bad news, some bad news, some bad news. And so we need some good news. And this letter written by the Apostle Paul is the letter of good news. Last week we started to look at the bad news of this letter, though. Because in order to understand the good news, you have to understand what is the bad news. And so we are spending some time looking at this bad news so we can get to all the good news. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for what? Help me out here, church. It is the power of God for, for salvation. Power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Did he say this is the power of God for salvation for a few people? No. Everyone. He says to the Jew and to the Greek. In other words, he's saying this is covering all people. No matter your skin color, no matter what language you speak, no matter what country you live in, no matter what state you live in, no matter where your background is, God's Word is the power of salvation, the gospel. For in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now many would say that this is Paul's thesis statement of the entire letter of Romans. This is Paul's purpose statement. He says, here's the purpose. Here's what I want you to understand. I want you to understand, one, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's like, I'm not ashamed of so I'm going to preach it. I'm going to teach it. I'm going to tell you about it because I want you to understand it. I want you to preach it. I want you to teach it. And I don't want you to be ashamed. Paul says that's part of my purpose statement. He says this is power in here for salvation. Salvation for who? For those who believe. Those who come to understand who Jesus is, and they put their belief in Him. He says, listen, this is great stuff. That's good news. And he says it's for every single person. That's his purpose statement. That's the thesis. He says, now, let me start explaining to you. Now, let me break it down. The rest of Romans is breaking it down so we can understand it. My hope and prayer, church, is that we understand this good news so well and we understand it so well that we get so excited about it that one, we allow it to make us new and our lives get changed and we get so excited about it that we say, I gotta go tell somebody else because good news is not to be kept. If you won some money, you'd probably go tell somebody. You get a new job, you go tell somebody. You're going to have a baby, you go tell somebody. You get engaged, you go tell somebody. Your kids got straight A's, you go tell somebody. I'm going on vacation, I'm going to go tell somebody. I just won a sporting event, I'm going to go tell somebody. Michigan beat Ohio State, yes, I'm going to go tell somebody. We, we, we tell somebody good news. And for some reason in the church, we have good news about it. Well, the people know I'm a Christian. I, I better not speak it too loud. No, I want us to get so motivated and so excited as we go through this great letter. We go, I cannot help but let somebody know the good news of the gospel. 
Now, right after he wrote these words, he followed them up with these words that we dove into last week in verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is being revealed. Now, we hear that word wrath, and we say, wait a minute, God's a God of wrath? Sometimes that freaks us out. Because we start thinking about the wrath of God, and we start tying it to human wrath. We think about the husband who has uh, put his wrath on his wife in an improper way. Or we think about the, the parent who puts their wrath on a child in an improper way. Or we think about a boss who is an explosive boss, and, and they have wrath that they ex- expel and they, and they put out. And those are all, all wraths that are human wrath, but we tend to tie human wrath to God's wrath. And we think about wrath, and we think, well, God is an angry, mean, awful God. And that's not what Paul is saying. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed. Simply, God's wrath means that it is God's settled hostility towards sin. That God and sin cannot uh, coexist. They, they will not live in the same space because God is a holy God and God has a wrath against anything of sin. It's being revealed. It's being shown little by little. Like the flooding of the earth is part of God's wrath being revealed going, listen, this nation is so sinful, that's not what I want. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, when Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, why is it destroyed? It's all about sin. And so it's all being revealed. And who's it being revealed to? To those who suppress the truth. Well, who's those who suppress the truth? Well, it's those who claim there, are no, there is no God. Probably all of us in this room or all of us that are joining us live this morning on Facebook probably all know somebody who has told you, I don't know if there really is a God. I don't know if I really believe that. How can you possibly believe in a God when A, B, C, D, and E has happened? How could a God allow this to happen or allow that to happen? Those are people who would fall under those who suppress the truth. Suppressing the truth are those who claim God's Word is not real. Wait a minute, you believe in that Bible? You mean that was written by a bunch of humans? How can you possibly believe in that Bible? There's no way that thing can be real. There's errors in that thing. How can you trust it? Those are people who suppress the truth. Those who claim that God's Word are not relevant today, that it's old school, that it's out of touch. I mean, that Bible was written many, many years ago. There's no way it applies to 2021. Have you ever been claimed or or thought somebody was old school and their teaching didn't mean anything anymore? All of us have been there. It's called being a teenager. You look at your parents, and you look at your parents, you think, my parents are idiots. Let's be honest, how many people thought their parents were idiots at some time in your life? Some of you don't know how to be honest. (laughs) The truth is, all of us at one time or another thought, my parents are dumb, my parents are old school, my parents don't know what they're talking about. That starts sometime in your before teenage years, and it goes through your teenage years, and many times goes into your 20s, and sometime around maybe 30, you start to wake up and go, my parents maybe are a little smarter than I realize. Maybe. And in your 40s, you start going, man, they're really smart. They really knew a whole lot. It just takes too long. What happens is, when God's Word is no good, God's Word is useless, God's Word is old school, why would I listen to that? And then you go and live life on your own, and you get it all screwed up, and eventually, maybe you start coming back, and go, you know what, maybe this thing has some truth to it. 
Maybe there's some guidance in this thing. Maybe I should wake up and start actually reading this word. Maybe I should start studying this word. Paul's saying those who suppress the truth are those who say God's word is irrelevant, that it doesn't matter anymore. And Paul's saying, listen, you've got to watch out for those who suppress the truth. So Paul goes on and makes a case, like an argument, like a lawyer. That's what he's doing as you go through Romans. If you're a lawyer, you're, you would love the book of Romans. That's your background. Because he, he starts making his case, and Paul makes his statement. And now he goes on in the next verses that we're going to study today, and he supports his explanation of what he's saying. Paul gives reasons why the Romans and everyone else fully deserve to be under the wrath of God. And so here's what happens to us. He talks about the behavior of mankind. First of all, we reject God. We reject God. In verse 19, we see Paul starting to share why he said what he said. Look at verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, get this, so they are without excuse. God's wrath is being revealed because all people do know God and then they deliberately rejected Him. Verses 19 and 20 are mainly establishing the fact that the Gentiles, they know the truth. They know there's a God. See, the Jews had this special knowledge and relationship. That's the Old Testament where they knew God and they had a relationship with God. But the Gentiles know who God is too, even without that special relationship from the past. And Paul's like, yeah, you have no excuse. You can't say, wait, I'm not part of the Jewish heritage. Wait, I didn't know all the laws. Wait, I didn't know all the rituals. Wait, I didn't know all that. And so I don't know who this God is. And Paul's making this thing specifically. He's saying, you know it by looking around at the created universe. Just look around at creation, Paul says. Just look around and you know there's a God. Look at the rivers. Look at the flowers. Look at the trees. Look at the streams. Look at the bugs. Look at the plants. Look at your hand. Just stop and look at creation. And Paul's like, people know there's a God. Tertullian, an early church father, writer of Christian history, wrote that God can be revealed in creation. Look, listen to what he wrote. He says, it was not the pen of Moses that initiated the knowledge of the Creator. The vast majority of mankind, though they had never heard the name of Moses, to say nothing of his book, know the God of Moses nonetheless. And nature, he said, is the teacher and the soul is the pupil. One flower of a hedge by itself, one shell of a, any sea you like, one feather of a fowl. Will they speak to you of a creator? If I offer you a rose, will you scorn its maker? That we can look around us in the beautiful central Kentucky as grass is starting to green, as trees are starting to bloom, as rivers are flowing, you can look around and go, there's a creator. There's a maker who put this together. There was a disease that left Helen Keller blind and deaf as a young girl. Her family hired Ann Sullivan to take care of Helen. And through Ann's tireless and selfless efforts, Helen finally learned to communicate through touch. And she even learned how to talk. When Ann first told Helen about God, the girl's response was that she had already knew about him. She just didn't know his name. A girl that could not see, but she could feel a touch, knew there is a creator. 
So here's the hard truth. God has given enough revelation about himself so that no one will ever be able to stand before God and say, God, I had no clue that you existed. There's no way. We, are all, we, we're, we all have no excuse. Everyone is accountable to know there's a God. What has God revealed specifically about himself? Verse 20, Paul tells us that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been, cl- been clearly seen. God's eternal power and his divine nature. Paul's like, listen, look at the eternal power. If you look around and you see creation, you would come away with the great idea that the creator of what we see must be powerful. He must be great. But Paul includes the idea the creator is not only just powerful from what he created, but eternally powerful. In other words, if he can make what we see around, then he can surely provide a way to be eternally rescued. God's divine nature that he's wise, and he's good, and he's loving, and the elements of God's nature are visible. I mean, you look around and you see beauty. What does it tell us? That God is a God of beauty. You look around and see goodness. You say, well, because of goodness, I can see that there's goodness in God. You look around and see love, and you say, well, because of love, I can see that our God is made of love. I can tell you about his nature. He is a God who's wise beyond uh, specific intelligence is his design and creation. You can know his divine nature and you can know his d- eternal power. Paul's like, just by looking at creation, you can know there's a powerful God with eternal powers. Since all this is known, then the argument of some people is well, wouldn't we be better off not knowing about Jesus because if they didn't know, then they wouldn't be held accountable? That's not a valid argument. The truth is, people say, oh, I know there's a God. What's our job as a church then? You need to know who Jesus is. You need to know how to be with God. And so when people look around and we start the argument, just look at nature. Let's be real. Look at nature, and you've got to see that there's a God. Now let me tell you about Jesus. See, God is just. Psalm 111 tells us that God is just, and His judgments are done in faithfulness and uprightness. So that doesn't take away our responsibility to reveal specifics about who Jesus is. They may not have a full understanding. They may look around and go, man, those stars are amazing. Or for instance, the other day I pulled in a church parking lot and I saw the sun coming up on this side and I saw the moon on this side and I just stopped for a moment and took that in and went, God, you're amazing. Even to a person who doesn't know there's a God would look around and say, there's a creator. And so our job is to introduce them to that creator through Jesus Christ. So Paul says mankind rejects God, rejects God, which then leads us into acts of rejection. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark, darkened. See, people reject God by not glorifying him as God and not by giving thanks to God. And although God is the very source of every good thing we possess, the rain and the sun and and the food, we thank God because we do not want to glorify Him nor even acknowledge existence. So what does he say? Paul's like, you got to look at all this stuff and say, thank you, God. The the, the food on my table, the the water that's watering my grass, the sun that that keeps us warm and, and takes care of us, those are all great matters. And Paul's like, you should be able to glorify God just by looking around today more prevalent than ever, it's been the last hundred years, that people need to see God. What's happening is non-believers are growing at an alarming rate, though we have more knowledge on this earth than we've ever had. 
to understand the creation. The non-believing crowd, the crowd who says, I don't need the church, I don't need God, I'm going to do life on my own, is growing while our knowledge about our creation and how it's put together is growing exponentially. For example, consider the fact that the earth is 25,000 miles in circumference. It weighs 6 septillion, 588 septillion tons and hangs in unsupported space. How do they know that? Well, science has discovered that. And this earth hangs in space. You go, how's it not like just crashing? How's it not just floating in all kinds of weird directions? It spins at 1,000 miles per hour and doesn't even mess up your hair. I mean, how does that happen with absolute precision and flies through space around the sun at the speed of 1,000 miles per minute, an exact orbit 580 million miles long? This Earth stays right on that orbit and never gets off of it. And if we were to move a little feet off course towards the sun, we would cook. If we moved a little bit away from the sun, we would freeze. That's been discovered because of science. And we look at that and more and more people say, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if I can believe in that church stuff. I don't know if I can do that. See, there are people who believe that all this just happened by some random events. I don't know about you, but I think if you look at all that and you just marvel, I mean, look at the human hand and how each finger can move and all the muscles and all the blood vessels that are just in the human hand. Or, or consider all the veins within your body. You have over 600 miles worth of blood vessels and veins in your body. Just in your body. How do they all function together to make sure that we are all working properly? That's because there is a God, and our God that has created a precise world and a precise order. It's inconceivable that such accuracy could have developed of any other way than by a master designer who created the universe. Paul says, stop and look at that, church. Stop and look at that, unbeliever. Stop and look at that, those who suppress the truth. It would be far more reasonable to think that the separate pieces of a watch could be put in a bag and shaken in a bag and eventually become dependable timepiece that you could wear on your wrist. Stop and think about it for a moment. Henry Ward Beecher, the pre-Civil War congregational minister, possessed a beautiful globe that depicted the various constellations and stars of the heavens. Robert Ingersoll, he's known as a famous controversial agnostic, visiting Beecher one day, admired the globe and asked him, he said, well, who made it? Who made it, said Beecher, seizing the opportunity to challenge his guest's well-known agnosticism. Why, nobody made it. It just happened. Beecher was implying that just as a globe was clearly designed and made by someone or also has designed our great world, by God. See, there's no way to, to look at a house and just say, well, nobody made that. It just showed up. There's no way to, to, to look at something, a, a painting on a wall and go, well, that painting just appeared. There's no way to do that. And same with this world. That's what Paul is saying. Listen, there's no way to look at this world and not say there's a master designer. There's a master creator. See, God has revealed himself clearly to all people through his creation so that men and women are without excuse when they find themselves under the wrath of God. Paul says in verse 21 that although they knew God, through this natural, general revelation, people still reject Him. So as a consequence of not glorifying God or giving thanks, people became futile in their thinking. Do you see the 
the progression. People's thinking about spiritual matters becomes useless and becomes pointless. People reject him. They reject God. And out of that rejection, then they act out of that rejection, which leads us to foolishness. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Pretty simple. Oh, there's no God. You don't need to believe that stuff. That Bible can't be real. Let's suppress the truth, suppress the truth. And they think they're really wise, but they become fools. See, in rejecting God's clear revelation of himself through his creation, people become spiritually foolish and darkened in their hearts, trying to justify themselves and trying to rationalize their sin or their behavior. They became fools translates a verb from the Greek word family of which we get our word moron. Literally. Thus they became foolish and moronic. Some translations said they made fools of themselves. and applies especially to their moral reasoning. You know, when we're left to our own moral reasoning, we have hundreds and thousands of ideas. We go around this room and we just had a moral discussion and you take away the Bible, we're going to be all over the place. Hence why our country is where it's at. Because we're trying to operate from moral reasoning and not from a God reasoning. And see, let me just give you a warning. When you get on social media and you want to debate with somebody about some issue of life, if you're not starting from the same starting place, which would be the starting place of Scripture, the debate's going to go in circles forever and ever and ever and ever because you're dealing with one person who's morally reasoning from their own mind when you're trying to reason from a scriptural biblical standpoint that's what we see happening all the time see centuries earlier king david declared that men who deny god and his truth are in fact fools psalm 14 says the fool says in his heart there is no god they are corrupt they do abominable deeds there is none who does good when evangelist dl moody preached in cities to large crowds he frequently faced people who were hecklers and who strongly disagreed with his teaching from the scriptures. In one service, while on a tour in the cities in America, the story is told that an usher walked up to him and handed him a piece of paper that was folded up, and he was getting ready to preach. Please don't ever do that to me. But he handed him this piece of paper, and he unfolds it, and he opens it up, and, it's, and he starts to read it. In large print, there's one word. It says, fool! Exclamation point. Moody stood up then and addressed the crowd, and he said, I have just been handed a memo which contains the single word fool. This is most unusual. I've often heard of those who have written letters and forgotten to sign their names, but this is the first time I've ever heard anyone who signed his name and forgot to write the letter. See, only fools look at all that has been made and say there is no God. Church, I'm not from this region, and you know that. That's why I cheer on the teams from the north. But I've been here for 20 years, and I still run into people in Lexington that I'll say, isn't it great to be here? Isn't it a beautiful area? Yeah, it's okay. I want to encourage you, church, don't underappreciate Central Kentucky. 
as you drive about and you see the beautiful farms that we have around here and you see the trees that start to come into bloom and you see rivers that are flowing and a rain that will come from the sky and you see the green, beautiful blue grass that takes off, as you see all that around central Kentucky, you stop and you say, thank you, God. Thank you for your creation. Thank you for this beautiful region. And it's not only this region. I know there are many beautiful regions across our land. But so many times we come to underappreciate it. And we go, ah, it's okay. What we're saying to God, hey, God, what you made, yeah, it's okay. Because God's the creator of it all. Man rejects God, leads us to acts of rejection. Man becomes foolish, and lastly, the rejection of God's wisdom then leads us to self-religion, is what Paul's saying. Paul tells us in spite of God's revelation of himself in creation, men and women, then they've exchanged uh, the glory for the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. Birds and animals and reptiles. Look what the scripture says. Uh, And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You know, people often measure their wisdom by the kinds of deals or trades they make. You go and you buy a car and it's listed at 10000 and you talk the person down to 8000 You tell them, man, look at the deal I made. I outsmarted them. I got it. You know, or, or maybe just something simple. The other day I sold some of Kayla's old baseball equipment and I think I lost the deal because as we were talking and she talked me down 10 bucks on a deal, I went, wait a minute. Why are you talking me down? Because she's like, you know, talking about gasoline and all this. But I, I feel like I got shorted on a deal on the exchange. I was like, I, I should have kept it at the price I had it at. You know, but we all measured, was I successful, was I wise by exchanging deals? And as we make deals, we think, I did good or I didn't do so good. See, Paul says the Gentiles have made it a swap or they they made an exchange, but it's not a very clever one. In fact, it's the worst one possible anyone could ever made. They've traded the real things for the phony things, the useless. The Gentiles have exchanged God for images. Get it? Exchange God, not for like a, a real thing, but for a picture of a real thing. So they made this exchange for pictures, images of men and birds and animals and reptiles. Not even actual men or actual birds or actual reptiles, but just images. Hey, you know what? Instead of believing in God, believe in this image. See that reptile? Worship that. Oh, believe in this image. See this idol? Just, just, just worship that. And the Greek phrase is the likeness of an image or a likeness patterned after the form of these things. The characteristics shared by all these, char- by all these categories is mortality, that they're all corruptible and that they're all perishable, that they're all going to pass away. And it's true not just of the idols and the statues, but of the things themselves after which the idols are patterned. How can a man or woman create himself? So Paul says the only logical thing is that there's creator. Not many creators but one creator. And God is justified in his wrath because he's given the answers to the test through his great creation. And so as Paul goes on, he, he just, stop, we're going to stop here for today, but Paul says, listen, you stop and you look at creation and you tell me 
there is no God. And if you do, Paul says, you're a fool because God has proved himself through creation, and that's the God that we worship. Bow your heads with me. Father God.